The psalmist, traditionally regarded as King David, is fervent in his desire to commune with God. Psalms of praise, psalms of despair, psalms of desperation, all of these convey a deep faith in worlds beyond our own and in a God who is sovereign over them all. In Psalm 8, we find an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty over the so-called heavens, shorthand for cosmic realms beyond our own, and over the earth, which God has given dominion to us. On this World Communion Sunday, we recognize that there is harmony to be found amongst the people of the world and with the world that we inhabit and perhaps even amongst the heavens and all of the worlds we cannot see. Psalm 8. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands and you have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. May they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whose name we pray. Amen. Waking up is hard to do. You see, I'm not a morning person. I wish I was. I really do. There's Great beauty to be found in the rising sun and in the still quiet moments before the gears of industry and commerce begin to turn, before the people racing off to work choke down their coffee and choke up the freeways and the proverbial rat race begins. Morning on earth is a beautiful thing, but I usually sleep through most of it. And after I've hit the snooze button on my alarm clock a few times, my eyes finally open, slowly, like cracks in some primordial mountainside formed over millennia by rivulets of rainwater. A pitiful moan escapes my lips, like the earth itself groaning beneath the accumulated weight of civilization. I crawl out of my blankets and try to stand as if I were the first eldritch creature to learn to walk on two legs. My steps halting and unsure like a Neanderthal, and I begin hunting for sustenance. But sometimes, as I reach for that first cup of coffee, I realize that I'm still in bed, and I was only dreaming. 
dreams within dreams as I continue to awaken, to arise over and over again, only to find that I was asleep all along. It's usually only when my kids come along and forcibly drag me out of bed that the illusion is finally shattered and I awaken to the so-called real world. There are some, of course, who believe that we are all asleep, that the world we know is little more than a dream, a veil, an illusion of some kind that we are all convinced is real. The philosopher Plato famously compared our reality to flickering shadows on the wall of a cave, shadows of more substantial objects that we can't see because they're behind us and we can't turn around. We can only look upon the wall in the shadow play that unfolds there. Of course, Plato's allegory is reflected in many of the world's religions, which assert that the world that we know is only a small fraction of reality, one layer of a much larger universe that we can't see or comprehend. A dream within a dream. But if that's true, then what happens when we finally wake up? My brother, Joshua, is frequently mistaken for being Jewish. It happens to me sometimes, too. Uh, but it happens to him a lot. One day, uh, as he was telling me, my brother was taking a walk to the local deli when a man walked up alongside him. Brother, the man said, are you on your way to the temple? Let's go together. My brother explained that he was not, in fact, on his way to the temple, but the guy wouldn't take no for an answer. But it's Yom Kippur, he protested. Where else would you be going? Well, I'm going to the deli, he explained. On Yom Kippur? You're supposed to be fasting, the man protested. Come on, let's go to the temple together. After persuading the man that he wasn't Jewish, he finally made his way to the deli to buy some sausage. Guy behind the counter says to him, Hey, uh, I thought your people aren't supposed to eat pork, isn't that right? My people, my brother replied, a little confused. Yeah, you know, you Jews. Uh, isn't that against your religion or something? But I'm not Jewish, my brother explained again for the second time that day. Of course you are, the other man insisted, as if he, my brother were somehow mistaken. Friends, we may not be Jewish, but we have much to learn from other cultures. And as Christians in particular, we owe much to our shared heritage with the children of Abraham. And today in particular, I want to highlight a distinctly Jewish understanding of the universe. Within the mystical traditions of the Kabbalah and the rabbinic traditions of the Midrash, a kind of interpretive storytelling, our reality is composed of several layers, not unlike an onion. Within this mythological framework, there is not one heaven, but rather several higher planes of existence. The material universe that we all know is a dim reflection of these holier realms, a shadow on the wall of Plato's cave. And the higher you ascend, the more layers you transcend, the closer you get to God. According to one rabbinic text, there are seven heavens, 
The first serves to renew the work of creation every day. The second is that in which the sun and moon and stars and constellations are set. In the third, millstones grind manna for the righteous. In the fourth is the heavenly Jerusalem, where the temple and altar are built. In the fifth heaven, there are companies of the ministering angels who are silent by day and utter divine songs at night. In the sixth heaven are stored the treasuries of snow and hail and the loss of dews and raindrops, the chambers of whirlwind and storm, the cave of vapor, and the doors of fire. The seventh is the highest heaven, Erevat, where are found the treasuries of peace and blessing, the souls of the righteous and the souls not yet created, and the throne of God, high and exalted, dwells above them all. There are some amazing legends about sages who have managed to traverse these realms, ascending the different dimensions of reality. One of these stories harkens back to Abraham and his son Isaac, who God instructs to sacrifice uh, his only son in the book of Genesis. Now, according to the legend, when Isaac is tied up to the altar, in the briefest of moments, before Abraham is about to plunge the blade into him, Isaac is taken on a grand tour of the cosmos. As it reads in another Midrashic text, when the knife touched Isaac's throat, his soul flew from him, rising up through the palaces of heaven. And when Abraham unbound him, Isaac arose, seeing the world for the first time as if he'd been reborn. Psalm 8 Today's scripture makes a few references to the plurality of the so-called heavens. You have set your glory above the heavens, the psalmist sings. More importantly for our purposes today, the psalmist proclaims that you have made them a little lower than God. This also speaks to the idea that there is a kind of hierarchy of realms stretching from earth to the highest heaven. Creation as we know it, the earth, the moon, and the stars in the words of the psalmist, is lower than God, but nonetheless a part of this cosmic geography. I'd compared reality to an onion a few minutes ago. I'm also reminded of Russian dolls, or matryoshka, a series of dolls that are nested within one another. Opening one reveals another, a doll within a doll, a dream within a dream. And peeling away the layers, we get a little closer to waking up, seeing the world for the first time, as if we'd been reborn. It occurs to me that in addition to the various heavens and dimensions that may comprise reality, we have created a reality of our own. We call it civilization. It's the accumulated corpus of humanity's achievements, religion, philosophy, art, economics, technology, politics, a construct of our own design that strives to mimic God's act of creation. But here's the problem. God's creation, from the highest heaven to the deepest ocean, exists in a kind of harmony. Every layer of reality is an imperfect reflection of the layer above it, but they're all part of the same divine ecosystem created by God. We are a part 
of that natural order too. We are part of that divine ecosystem, but most of the systems we have created are not. All that stuff I mentioned earlier, our economics, our technology, our politics, even our religion, they're artificial and deeply flawed. Our sacred cows are more profane than we might care to admit. And as human history has unfolded, it seems to me that our civilization has become further and further removed from nature, removed from God's creation. We no longer exist in harmony with creation, but rather in opposition to it. Now, I'm hardly the guy to be telling you this, okay? I'm not exactly an outdoorsman or a nature guy. You know, my wife likes to watch that TV show, Naked and Afraid, about people who are dumped in the jungle without so much as a pair of underwear who try to survive for a month. Let's just say I wouldn't make it, okay? Unless there happened to be a McDonald's nearby. I've always been more at home in a shopping mall than a forest. But that's only because I've been conditioned by society to feel that way since the day I was born. I was taught to consume. I'm reminded of a lyric from a song. You will learn to take more than you give. Lying scars we must live with. Nearly every aspect of our so-called civilization has been designed to exploit and profit off of one another and off of the earth. God has given us dominion over nature, as it says in the psalm, but we have not used that power responsibly. As the writer David Price offers in his article titled, Waking Up is Hard to Do, I agree that we must lose our grandiosity that what's required of humans is people who are humble, compassionate, questioning, capable of resolving ancient wounds, able to divest ourselves of our conditioning. On World Communion Sunday, we typically celebrate the beauty and diversity of other cultures. But I want to do more than that. I want to remind you all and myself that we all share this world, no matter what nation we call home, no matter what language we speak, that we're beholden to one another and responsible for each other's welfare, that we exist in a divine ecosystem, an interconnected web of being that reaches all the way to the throne of God, that we are called to be in communion with one another and with God's creation in all of its forms. And the more we can live in harmony with each other and with the natural world, the closer we get to God. Gathering at a table long enough to stretch through all the worlds that God has made. Waking up is hard to do. I don't know if we can really divest ourselves of our conditioning. But if we can, perhaps we'll see the world for the first time, like Isaac, as if we had been reborn. Amen. <laughs>